Gorsuch, and I'll be reading from Luke 3:15 through 22. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be together. I got to give a little disclaimer, two things just right in the beginning of the message. Uh, the first one was I realized I am getting old. Uh, part of that was when I woke up this morning feeling really good and then I stretched in bed and I tweaked my neck just by stretching. So this side, if I'm not making eye contact with you, it's because I have to turn my whole body to look at you. I'll do my, do my best. The second thing, um, yesterday, Pastor Jason and I were privileged to participate in the celebration of life for Bev Hall's husband, Keith, here at the church. And uh, after the service, I was talking with Pastor Jason. I said, man, Jason, I said, just, uh, I really feel like I should maybe break this message that I'm doing tomorrow up, up into two. I said, but I, you know, I don't, I want to just do that yet. And he's like, yeah, come on, you can do it. Just go ahead and do it. And I was like, are you sure? And, and so I, yesterday and then this morning when I woke up, I was praying through it. And I, and I realized, you know what? After 21 years of you know, ministry, I realized that I need to uh, listen to the Spirit's leading. And so I'm breaking the message up into two. Um, and so if you like how the message ends, uh, yay for me. If you don't, that's on Jason, okay? So, um, but in, in truth, why I tell you that is so as you're looking at your notes, uh, we're not going to cover points three, four, and five. They actually fit really well with the message I'm going to give in a few weeks that will finish up uh, that section. But today, we are going to be, though, in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18. So I invite you to open your Bibles there. And while you do, I want to begin by talking about just our human condition and considering with you what we're like as human beings. There's something that psychologists have looked at called the Dunning-Kruger effect, effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is this. It, it states that typically a human being has a, a higher view of their capabilities than they actually have. Uh, they did a test with a bunch of individuals, and after the test was done, they asked people, did you score higher on the test or lower on the test than what you thought? And uh, many of those uh, responded that they 
scored higher on the test. And, then, and those who didn't think that they scored higher on the test, here's what happened. Those who thought that they scored high on the test actually scored lower on the test than they anticipated. Those who didn't think that they scored high on the test actually scored higher than they did. Are you, are you tracking with me? And what I mean is that people tend to um, think more, more highly of themselves and their abilities than, than what we actually have. This is proven by the fact that the recent statistics state that 93% of people think they're better drivers than the average person. Okay. Now, if the average is like 50%, I'm not much of a mathematician. But if 93% of us think that we're better than the rest, that's a mathematical impossibility. So that means that we're not as good as we think we are. Interestingly enough, 90% of teachers think they are more skilled than their peers in the same field. Again, that can't work, right? It's just not statistically possible. And then there's this. I hate, this is one I, I hate to, to share or hesitate to. When people look in the mirror, they tend to rate themselves as more attractive than people <laughs> who are looking at them. Okay, I hate to burst your bubble, but they say psychologically, when you look in the mirror and you see your eyes, you, you focus on yourself in such a way that, that you tend to view yourself, your outfit, whatever it is, is more attractive than those around you actually perceive you to be. Ouch. So right now you're sitting there thinking, I came to church this morning, Dave, and you're saying I am dumber and uglier than I thought. <laughs> now, that's not the point. That's not what I'm trying to stress. What I am trying to stress, though, is... Do we have a right view of ourselves? Do we correctly, do we rightly think of ourselves the way that we should? In our text this morning, we're coming back to a man by the name of John the Baptist. In the text this morning in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, we're going to see John the Baptist come to us as an individual who genuinely had a right view of himself and specifically a right view of himself in relationship to Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that if you view yourself rightly and view yourself rightly in light of Jesus Christ, that is one of the most significant things that can happen to you. So I want to pick up the text with you in verse 15 where it says this. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now last week we looked at the first part of this series of verses that were talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now John at this time was out in the wilderness, out by the Jordan River, and he was proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. He knew that he had been given a mission by God, the mission to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, and he had been given a message to proclaim in order to prepare them, and that was the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He says, if you want to be ready for the coming Messiah, you need to repent. You need to acknowledge your need for him. You need to acknowledge your condition. And people were going out into the desert and, and his message was so powerful. His teaching was so profound that people began to wonder, you know, John, you're, you're saying that the Messiah is supposed to come. You're saying that this is what's necessary for us to be prepared to receive him. And they began wondering, are you actually him? Are you actually this promised Messiah? You see, even just 
for the people going out, you could understand why there was some energy, why there was some buzz about John. I mean, where he was proclaiming his message out in the wilderness, it wasn't in the cities, it wasn't surrounded by bunches of people. He was in a place that was not necessarily easy for people to get to, a place that people didn't want to go to even vacation. He's, he's out there in the wilderness. He's out there in the Jordan. People had to make an effort and crowds were going to see him. Last week we saw, literally, the word was crowds went out. There were tax collectors. There were soldiers. There were just regular people. People of all socioeconomic status were going out to see John. And the buzz around him, you could see why people were starting to get excited. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe he is the Messiah. Uh, on top of this, I think that one of the reasons that people were, were drawn out to, to see John is because they had probably... Hey, we don't know this for sure, but some had probably been aware of the prophecy that had made, been made about him by his father, Zechariah. If you remember how John came into the world, uh, his parents were really old. His dad was a priest and he would go to Jerusalem. And while he was there in Jerusalem, his dad was struck mute by an angel while he was burning incense in the temple. And, and so all the people that would have been around that day would have, would have come to know this amazing story of how Zechariah was visited by an angel and the angel said that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age would have a son and, and so you began to wonder, what's his son gonna be? Who's he gonna turn out to be? I think some of his popularity was from the fact that they were just, they were curious about him. I was reminded of a, of a baseball player, a guy by the name of Bryce Harper. He now plays for the Philadelphia Phillies but as a young boy playing baseball, um, he began to get some notoriety. I think it was by the time he was 13, he was actually on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And so a lot of people were wondering, is, is this going to be the next great ball player from an early age? And so, and so what did people do? They, they followed his career. And, and I don't know whether or not you'd say he lived up to his full potential, but he became an all-star. And, and so I think that there was something about that with John. All growing up, people were, were maybe curious. Is this the guy? Is this Zechariah's son? Is this the one that all those things happened around his birth? And so the crowds went out to him. Now, while the crowds weren't too sure about John, what to make of him, John knew exactly who he was. Look at how the text says in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, look at how John responds. John answered them all, saying... I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. What has John just done here? What has he just proclaimed? Well, he's just made it abundantly clear to the crowds. He's removed any doubt with his words. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that you should be looking for. Instead, John says... There's one coming who's mightier than I. That little word there that there's one coming that's mightier than, than John is this word in the Greek that, that points to a degree of superiority, a, a ability and capability that is so much greater than the, the thing that's being compared to that it should be in a whole other class. What John is saying here is there's one to come after me but you got to understand, John says, I don't even compare to. He has capabilities, he has abilities, he has capacity of which I know nothing. He is mightier than I. And then he gives the little illustration to help people understand exactly what he means by this. It's an illustration that's kind of lost on us, but to the people of the day, they would have immediately recognized it. 
You see, when John comes, he, he gives this illustration. He says, there's one who's coming after me whose, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. I'm, I'm not worthy to untie this man's sandals. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of an odd thing, but, but for them, it was actually a well-known rabbinic saying. See, in Jesus' day, if you were a Jewish teacher, you were called a, a rabbi. And people who desired to sit under a rabbi to follow his teaching, they would be called that rabbi's, guess what? Disciples, right? Jesus didn't come up with the term. It was in existence before that. And if you were going to be a rabbi's disciple, you would go to that rabbi and you would say, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. And as a way of displaying your willingness to follow their teaching, you were basically agreeing to be their their servant, to be their slave. As a display of my willingness to follow your teaching, I will take care of your day-to-day needs. I'll take care of whatever it is that, that you require. Now, Jesus turns this on its head, and we're going to see this a little later, where disciples don't go to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Instead, Jesus goes to people and he says, you will be my disciple. That was a completely different paradigm. But nonetheless, if you were the disciple of a rabbi, you would do everything for them but one task. And there was this famous saying that went around even in that day, and it said this, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thongs. So, yes, I as a disciple of a rabbi, I will follow you, I will take care of all your needs, but there is one task that's so below me, that's so below any person that, that I'm not going to do it, It's not you didn't do it because you were unworthy. You didn't take off the sandals of your teacher because it was a task so menial. It was a task so repugnant to to touch the dirty feet of somebody else. It's like that wasn't even left to a slave. A slave wouldn't even have to stoop so low to to do that. And so everybody understood, oh yeah, that's, that's a bridge too far to cross. So when John says, you want to know who I am, I'm not the Messiah, but one who's coming after me is greater than I because he's mightier than me. In fact, he is so great. He's in a category so distinct from me that it's not that I wouldn't take the sandals off his feet. It's that I'm unworthy to take the sandals off his feet. I am lower than the lowest servant in comparison to him. What John is telling us in these words is Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. This is what John is saying. He's not just saying that I am less than Jesus. He's saying Jesus is so exalted over everyone and everything. He is superior. He's in a category all his own. In fact, his superiority means that in comparison to him, I'm the lowest of the lows. Now, for John to say this is striking. For John to say this is striking for a couple of reasons. Number one, look at the crowds all around him. People are coming out to hear from John. You could see how John would be tempted to think there's something significant about me. I mean, I am the prophet whom God promised would, would come. But John doesn't care about that. The second thing that makes this so profound is that later on in Jesus' ministry, we're going to get to this in Luke chapter 7. I want you to hear what Jesus says about John. Listen to this. 
I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now he goes on to say that yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. But he says from an earthly perspective, if God were to be the judge of every person ever lived, for, for as far as their significance upon humanity, Jesus says John's greater than all y'all. And he's greater because of the ministry that he was given to do. And yet John says, listen, even though in the eyes of Jesus, I'm greater than all y'all, that none of that matters because Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. He's, he's over me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the perception of myself would be. Jesus is superior and he wants the crowds to get that. Do not confuse me for the one who is to come. That's John's message. Now this leads to a very reasonable question though. The question is, John, why are you saying that Jesus is so superior? What actually would make Jesus so superior? You know, in the business world, we judge one business's superiority over another based upon their, their sales, based upon their output. In sports, we're in the NFL playoff season. We say that one team is superior over another team because they, they won, they, they, they beat them. In academics, we would say, well, that person's superior academically to that person because look at their grades, look at how they scored on the test. We're always doing this comparison game and there's these ways that we evaluate a quote unquote someone's superiority, a business's, a team's, a person's over another. John comes and says, well, let me lay it out for you so you don't have to guess at why I understand him to be superior. He says it in verse 16. Look at it with me. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. That's my ministry. I'm baptizing you with water to prepare you for Jesus. But then look further down in verse 16. He will, that is Jesus, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, there it is, as clear as day. That's why Jesus is superior. <laughs> You're like, uh, what? <laughs> well, how, how does this show? Well, thank you. Let's break it down. Let's try and understand together what it is that John is showing us here. Because in reality, if you were a Jew in the first century and you heard what he just said here, you'd immediately have gone, oh, that's why. I see. And so what is he showing us? Well, first thing I want you to note is this. He says, verse 16, Jesus, unlike me, John says, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, that makes a lot, no, right? It's not necessarily clear. Again, what does it mean that he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, the first thing to understand is, you know, language, it means things. And those two words that he's gonna baptize with, the Holy Spirit and fire, did you see how it's a phrase that, that is connected with that preposition with? And so what we see here happening, both in the Greek and in the English, is that John isn't saying that Jesus is going to come with two baptisms, one with the Holy Spirit and another baptism with fire. He's talking about one baptism that has two components, one baptism that will bring the Holy Spirit and one that will be, bring fire. Now the question is, well, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, the word baptism, we know, is, it just simply means immersion, it means immersion. And so when he says, I'm going to baptize you, you're going to be immersed in something. John says, I'm going to baptize with water. So there's going to be immersion of, of water. But immersion then of the Holy Spirit and of fire, uh, I, I don't fully understand this. Well, let's talk about what it means. First, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Church, John is saying because Jesus can do this, it makes him superior. So, so what's he talking about here? Well, 
In the Old Testament, God had made clear to the Jewish people that one day he would give a new covenant. One day he would connect himself so intimately to his people that that his Holy Spirit would rest upon them. And it would be a sign that we had entered into this new covenant season when the Holy Spirit would come upon his people. And so the Jews understood that when the Spirit came, not just on people for a specific time or place to perform a task, but to dwell with the people, the new, the new covenant would be initiated. And so you have passages like Ezekiel 36, 27. These Old Testament prophets say, and this is God speaking, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then in chapter 37, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I'm the Lord. I've spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And then Isaiah, another prophet, speaking for God says, and I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. But here's the real thing. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. And then the most famous passage of the Old Testament which predicts the Holy Spirit coming is Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What's happening here? John's saying, you want to know why Jesus, the one coming after, is so superior? You know why I'm unworthy to even take the sandals off of his feet? It's because he's the one who will place the Holy Spirit inside of you. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. I'm coming in the wilderness proclaiming a message to you to prepare you for the coming of the Messiah. But when this one comes after me, he can do what no other person could ever do. He is able to actually give the Holy Spirit that had been promised to the Jewish people. This is who he is, the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. This is how it's going to come about. And Jesus knew full well Jesus knew full well that this is who he was and what he was capable of doing. When you go and you look in John's gospel, I love the gospels. Each one is different. Some record the same events and stories in Jesus' life, and then others record some that aren't found in others. But there's this upper room discourse in John's gospel. It's in John 14, 15, and 16. And three different times in his teaching there on that evening before he was ultimately arrested, he brings up the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he says is this. He says, hey, listen, disciples, it's so good for you that I'm going to be going away. And they all freak out. You're going away? Where, where are you going? We want to go with you. And that's where he says the very famous, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. But he says, here's one of the reasons why it's so important that I go away. It's because if I go away, then I am able to send my spirit to be with you. And see, what they were so focused on at that time is that they're like, we like the physically present Jesus. If you're away from us, we won't have you. And he says, don't you get it? No, see, by my going away, I'm able to usher in the Spirit's presence into your lives individually. Jesus is making the proclamation that John the Baptist makes right here. Jesus knew what he was able to do. He can give what no other person can give. 
there are things at times as parents that we want to give to our children, but we say we don't have the time, we don't have the money, we don't have the resources to give it. When, when John says that Jesus is going to be able to give the Holy Spirit, the people at that time would have been like, this person is in a whole other, whole other category. To be able to give the Spirit of God means, means there's a capability and an ability that Jesus has that far exceeds anything. And John's like, yeah, no, duh. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not worthy to take off his sandals. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say that this is who Jesus is. This is his giving the Spirit isn't the only way that he displays his superiority. Look at what he says. Remember, it's a baptism of both the Holy Spirit and of what? Fire. Now, what does that mean? Is, it, you know, is he going to light things on fire? What's going to happen? Well, again, sorry, we're 2,000 years later. We're not as familiar with the Old Testament as the Jewish people were and how fire was used back then. They were clear on it. They would have gotten this immediately. Fire was used as something to refine, as something to cleanse, as something to purify. And the Old Testament says time and time again, I'm looking at my, my notes here, I'm looking at literally dozens of verses where in the Old Testament, the prophets are speaking and they're talking about how God would use fire to refine his people, that how God's fire was, was a means of his, of his judgment, and so you have this passage. I'm just going to pick one here. Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, the prophet is telling of the Messiah's coming. And here's what it says. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The coming of the Messiah is, is a means of God's judgment to be able to separate the people of God from those who are not his, his people. And so in verse 4, it says, or chapter 4 of Malachi, it says this, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When, when John says... The baptism that Jesus will bring is not just of the Holy Spirit, but of fire. He's saying that Jesus is the one who exercises God's judgment. Jesus is the one who's actually able to exercise the judgment of God upon the world. And the judgment of God, we often think of as, as a bad thing. And in one sense, it can be because judgment can lead to eternal punishment. Judgment can lead to being cast off like, listen, if something is not of quality and the fire strikes, it will burn up and there will be nothing left. But that which is pure, that's which will remain. Even when the fire comes, it only refines it. And that's what the illustration here of these Old Testament prophets, when the fire of, of God's judgment comes and Jesus is the one who's able to exercise that judgment, it's going to reveal who's his and who's not. In fact, if you remember when Jesus was a little baby, and he was dedicated in the temple 30 years before the events that we're reading here in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Simeon prophesied this very thing. He spoke to Mary, Jesus' mother, and said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. When you think about Jesus, when you think about who he is, John says you've got to have the right perspective on him. 
He's the one who brings about. He's the one who exercises God's judgment. He is capable of that. John's like, I just bring God's word. I just proclaim what God has called me to do. Jesus, on the other hand, is actually able to enact and bring about what God's word says. I'm just the one who proclaims it. And some people, through his judgment, will rise. And the later New Testament authors talk about rising to eternal life. And some will go down to eternal judgment. And in case we don't get that this is exactly what John has in mind, he says, let me give you an illustration. He's just like a pastor giving a sermon. He says, let me illustrate the point. I'm going to illustrate the point by this. Look at verse 17. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let me give an illustration, he says. When you picture Jesus, when you picture the one who's to come, the reason why he's different than me is he's the one who has the winnowing fork. And he can go to the harvest that has been gathered and, and, he, and he judges it. it like, and so you're like, what are we talking about here? I'm going to give you a picture. This is what it looks like. This is even today. This is men using a winnowing fork to do what John is talking about. This was the image that they would have had clearly in their minds. Back then, you would take your winnowing fork and you would go to the wheat that had been gathered and you would stick it into the, the pile that was there and you'd throw it up into the air. And what would happen is the heavy kernels would fall away from the wheat and the chaff would then blow away and fall into another pile. And so in doing this, see, this is a good picture of it. You can see it gathering there. In doing this, you'd be able to separate the wheat kernels from that which would be useless, that which would be burned. And, and so John is saying, to give you a right picture of the one who's coming after me, he's the one who has the right, he's the one who has the power to separate the two, to separate, to throw some to the fire, and in his refining, bring about those who are the people of God. Jesus exercises God's judgment. And part of the way that during his earthly ministry, we see this clearly on display, that as he speaks his words, some follow and some turn away. Some cannot receive him. But this was the ministry that he was given. John says, I want you to understand that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything because of what he's, what he's able to do, to give the spirit, to exercise God's judgment. Now, when you pull back, church, there should be something that's obvious to you at this point. Who in the Old Testament was the one who gave the Spirit? Who was the one in the Old Testament who would bring about God's judgment? Over and over again, it would always be God who is speaking. And so church, here's where we come to it. God, only God can do the things that John mentions here. Only God can send the Spirit. Only God can cleanse people. Only God has the right to judge the world. And so what John is saying, here's why Jesus, and this should be no surprise if you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of Luke, here's why Jesus is so superior to me because only God can do these things. And guess what? That means Jesus is anyone? God. This is why I'm unworthy to take off his sandals. Because of how great and awesome he is. John's message to the people was the superior one is coming. Because as we've talked about 
throughout Luke's gospel, the one who is coming is God himself. It's just one more statement about the divinity of Jesus. Now, while John is saying the superior one is coming, today, though, church, today we read this passage, and we don't say that the superior one is coming. We say the superior one has come. Jesus has come into the world. He has displayed his superiority in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so the rest of the New Testament authors, especially the book of Hebrews, if you want to get a kick out of something, read the book of Hebrews. And look at how the entire book of Hebrews is, is building on what John the Baptist says here, how Jesus is superior to, to everything. He's the superior sacrifice, superior high, high priest. He's the superior Israel. He's superior to everyone and everything. Now, I know I'm in a church, and I know our church, and, and I think that on an intellectual level, this statement does not shock you. And yet, and yet, as we think about what John is saying here, the question must be asked of us, does my life reflect, do my thoughts and my speech reflect that I have embraced the full superiority of Jesus in my life? Because this is true. John says, don't be looking to me. Don't be looking to anybody else. The one who's coming after me, he is superior over everyone and everything. And so, so the question that I began thinking about this week was, as God's people, John says, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. But what does that look like in 2024? What does it look like for you and I to have the mindset of a people who hold Jesus as that superior in our hearts and minds? Are you tracking with me on that? Because it's one thing to say intellectually he's superior, to say I believe that he is, but... But what will a life look like in reflection of that truth? And, and I think John's life actually gives us at least three things to consider and practice for today. If you say, yeah, Dave, I accept Jesus for who he is as God come down, superior because of what he's capable of. I think that there's three things that John shows us. Number one is this. We live in obedience to God's word. We live in obedience to God's word. John very meticulously and specifically uses this illustration of a, of a rabbi and his disciple. And, and he pulls us in and he draws us in and he says, you know, how, you know how today disciples view their rabbis in such a way that they submit wholly to them, that they're, they're willing to be their slaves and, and they follow whatever it is that their master says. He says, that's, that's how I'm looking at my life and living it out. I don't even, in fact, I want to be in such submission to him. I want to feel uh, that my perspective of him is, is such that I'm, that I'm even less than a slave because he's so great. And, and one of the ways that we manifest our understanding of Jesus' superiority in our life is that his word is our command. And that when we look at his word, we come to it and we say, Jesus, I want to submit my thoughts to what you say, not elevate my thoughts over yours. We want to be able to say, God, your word is not an optional thing for us, but is a thing that you require of us. 
It leads us to hear the words of God, and if God's word calls us to something other than what we're doing, to say, I will reprioritize everything in my life to follow the words of Jesus. Nothing matters more to me than than obeying what he calls me to. If Jesus is superior in your life, this is what will manifest. And in fact, I started with the illustration. I think that even as Christians who believe in Jesus, who, who would claim his superiority, there's, you have to understand your heart. I have to understand my heart that there's a tendency inside every one of us to desire to submit to our word and not God's word. That that, that whole Dunning-Kruger effect that I talked about is that we can tend to think of ourselves as doing a far better job in submission to God and his word than we're probably actually doing. Are you following me? Don't think that that just applies to one area of your life and yet in my spirituality, I'm perfect. I have no problems there. Jesus, I follow where you lead. No, stop. Stop and consider if he is this, how can I view Jesus any less than what John says here? When it comes to your life, does it look as though you are the master of your relationships, of your finances, of your fill-in-the-blank time, resources, money? Or is Jesus your master? Are all areas of my life submitted to his word? Am I, am I walking in obedience? When I see God's word clearly call me to something, do I look to go the other way? Do I make excuses or will I accept it? To say he's superior is to, again, live as though he were. In obedience to his word, John says, I think his life shows us that's one of the things it looks like. Secondly, and I really, I, I, I love how, how impactful this can be, is that we exalt Jesus, not ourselves. We exalt Jesus, not ourselves. If he's genuinely superior, if we, if we hold him as such, there's this exaltation of Jesus in our hearts and minds. And, and yes, part of that is through obedience to his word. But, but part of that of exalting Jesus and not ourselves is, is that look at what John does here. Everybody comes to him. You're so great, John. Are you the Messiah? We're, we're following you. And he deflects it. He says, it's not about me. What you have in your life and what I have in my life any skills, any gifts, whatever it might be, it's to make much of him and not to make much of, of me. There's such a tendency within the human heart to, to try and build ourselves up, to, to, to go around and, and to draw attention to ourselves. We so desire affirmation. We so desire recognition. We, we want people to, to see us. And it's not wrong to want to have relationships and to be known by people, but, but, but we go beyond that and, and, we, and we look to make much of ourselves and when we don't get it, well, as I like to say, we'll, we'll sin when we don't get it and, and sin in order to get it. And, and so you have to take a step back and say, why on earth would I spend any of my time, any of my energies trying to get others to affirm and exalt me when the only person I need to be worried about comparing myself to <laughs> is the one who's superior to everyone and everything? There's such a freedom that comes when we accept the superiority of Jesus over everyone and everything. There's such a freedom because there's such a release. Ah, I don't have to make it about me. 
It doesn't, it doesn't matter because my life isn't, isn't about me. I'm taking the posture of John. I want to exalt him and not myself. It, it also frees us from the, from the whole comparison game. The tendency in the human heart to say, I don't have what that person has. I'm not as good as that person over, over there. I wish I was this instead of this and, and all of those kind of things. And, and, and he says, why are you comparing yourself to somebody? Jesus said, listen, John's greater than all of you, but guess even the least of you is greater than him in the kingdom of heaven. So why, what's up with the comparison game? Release yourself. These are just like, isn't it so crazy that when Jesus is exalted in our lives, so many people think, oh, if I follow him as Savior and Lord, if, if he takes that place of superiority, I'm going to lose things. And that's why Jesus says, you crazy? <laughs> Whoever would gain his life should what? Lose it. To release yourself, to embrace him fully. I just pray that we never lose sight of who Jesus is, who we're dealing with, that he would be exalted in our hearts. But then there's one final thing, and, and it's seen here in verse 18. If we're going to live with Jesus as superior, look at what it says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. I love this little phrase. He says, Jesus is superior over everyone and everything. And, and, and then it says, and he just kept on doing something. He kept on preaching the good news. What was the good news? The Messiah is coming. And for John, that was his message. The Messiah is coming. What's our message? The Messiah, he has come. And so we proclaim Jesus to the world. You want him to be superior to the people around you? Know that you serve someone greater than yourself. The best way to do that is to make him known, to make that proclamation. I'm not saying that you're going on the street corners and you're doing street evangelism, although there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your neighbors, is Christ made known? That's why... We're going to talk about in the upcoming weeks our mission to glorify God by being and making disciples. One of the things we do is we proclaim this good news to the world. And, and even for your own hearts and minds, you know why it's so important that we proclaim Jesus to the world is because we need to proclaim Jesus to our own hearts every day. You know, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus is coming. Yes, we know that he's coming again. But, but did you see how John said, here's the good news, Jesus is coming. And then the New Testament authors say, here's the good news, Jesus has come. What we often miss is that we have good news every single day. You open up the paper, although we probably don't do that anymore, you scroll through your news feeds and you can see devastation and sin and hardship and everything that's happening in the world. But for the Christian, we say, Look at all that. Yeah, sure, but look at the good news. Jesus, the superior one, has come. He lived, he died, he rose, and that changes everything about us. And so, dear church, my prayer for us is that when we hear the proclamation of John, when he says, here is the superior one, that's not just John's words, but that in your life and in my life, that proclamation is made known. We don't play around with him as someone who's just a part of our lives, but that he is the most central and significant part of our lives. To him be the praise and glory both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come, as we lift up your word, we lift it up by proclaiming it. As we see John engage the crowds, Lord, so too he engages our hearts and minds today. Lord, his message was one that the Messiah is coming, 
and he is greater than all others. Today, we say you have come. And we even have more than John even knew to understand the significance and the superiority of Jesus. Lord, we love how in your word, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae that there is in Jesus all the greatness and majesty of you on display. And so, Lord, I don't know where the hearts are at this morning. I know where mine is at. I know, Lord, how desperately I need to cling to this word. And so would you, by your spirit, which Jesus gives to us, which we have because of Jesus, may we be drawn daily into believing, walking with Jesus as superior over everyone and everything in our lives. And that, Lord, if there's anyone who is not yet entered into that blessed experience, who doesn't know that freedom, Lord, your judgment is real. And I pray, Lord, that you would spare them the judgment of punishment, but instead that they would experience the judgment that leads to glory. And that they would confess Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, even today. And they would experience salvation that you so freely give. And you give it through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.